Book Two, Chapters Seven and Eight of Stolen Idols. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stolen Idols by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Book Two, Chapter Seven. Endicott laughed cynically, but not altogether unkindly, when Claire had finished her carefully prepared little speech that night after dinner. Their coffee had been served as usual out of doors under the cedar tree, and Claire had returned with her uncle to the study, still pleading the cause which the events of the afternoon had made to her almost vital. He went at once to the sideboard and helped himself to a whiskey and soda. "'It is fortunate, Claire,' he said, "'that I am a person of even temperament. "'Fortunate for you, perhaps, "'that I appreciate your presence here "'and your companionship so much. "'I have listened to you, I think you will admit, with patience. "'I shall now be as frank with you "'as I was with your Aunt Angèle last evening.' "'He took a long gulp of his drink, "'uncovered a tobacco jar, and filled his small pipe. Afterwards he exchanged his dinner-coat for a dressing-gown which had been placed on a chair in readiness, tied it round him, and seated himself at the writing-table. He dragged the steel-clamped coffer of manuscripts to his side and produced the key from his pocket. He did not at once open it, however. He swung around and faced Clare. "'You women,' he pronounced, "'stir my anger with these violent partialities.' God knows your Aunt Angèle has nothing to love those Ballastons for, yet she in her pleading was even worse than you. Father and son, they are both of the same mould, selfish, intolerant, proud, good to look at, if you will, but parasites in the great world of deeds and thoughts. I will grant them courage, but I deny them principle. I ask myself in wonder why I find you pleading for them. Well, I know— they have the gifts women love, the gifts which make women miserable. Fools! Your Aunt Angèle is a fool. You are a fool. I don't think we are anything of the sort, uncle, she retorted bravely. I can't even see that it is foolish to ask a perfectly reasonable thing for people whom you like. Sir Bertram may be everything that you say. I only know that I like him. I don't like bad people as a rule, but I like him. "'And what about the sun?' he demanded, his eyes narrowing, his thin but bushy eyebrows coming together. "'I like him, too,' she declared stubbornly. "'I was very angry with him on the steamer coming over, but since then I think that I understand him better.' "'You are not fool enough to be in love with him?' he asked. She stood for a moment without replying. The hand which was gripping the back of the chair against which she was leaning moved convulsively. Her eyes were a little misty, her tone when she answered almost indignant. "'That is a horrid question to ask, Uncle,' she declared. "'You may be a very learned man, but you know nothing about girls, American girls, anyhow. We don't fall in love. We leave that to the men. Of course I know that Gregory Ballaston is of the same type as his father, and they naturally are not the type which would appeal to you, but I like him.' I like to play tennis with him. I like to have him talk to me. I like his friends. He treats me charmingly. And I love dear Mr. Henry. I have never spent a more interesting hour than I spent with him this afternoon. He is delightful, a wonderful personality. To me it is a tragedy to think that they are going to lose their home. 
if the story of this treasure is true and you can help them to get the jewels why don't you you don't want the money you said the other day that you had more than enough they have one of the images the other one gregory risked his life to obtain you don't want yours let them have both and tell them how to get the jewels endicott puffed at his pipe steadily he had the appearance of seriously considering the matter you talk well child he admitted you remind me of your father you talk sense too that pleases me you shall have the truth from me at any rate i believe in the treasure i believe that in twenty-four hours from now i shall know exactly how to obtain it when i know how i will reconsider the whole matter impartially i promise you that it is practically what i promised your aunt she made a little movement towards him a gesture an exclamation of gratitude he waved her back let me warn you he continued my present inclinations are to devote the treasure which i may discover to building a university in pekin for the benefit of young englishmen and americans who wish to study the inner history and the truth about the greatest nation in the world and if the treasure should realize sufficient money to build others in boston and london for the benefit of the young chinese ask yourself now would not the money be better spent in that way than in handing it over to this piratical degenerate family to gamble away on horses and women and every manner of extravagance to breed another generation of dissolute ballastons who would lead the same life and another very likely after them what do you think claire the girl answered without hesitation i would rather the ballastons had the money you won't argue the matter i can't i would rather the ballastons had the money a part of it at any rate belongs absolutely to them although wu ling actually won back the statue gregory took home with him she hesitated this time but only for a moment you mustn't be angry with me uncle but i have always had it in my mind that wu ling is a chinaman and that he dealt the cards endicott sat quite still for a moment gazing at his niece then he did what was for him one of the rarest things in life he began to laugh he laughed until the tears stood in his eyes until he was compelled to remove his spectacles and wipe them when he had finished he took another gulp of his whiskey and soda claire he said you please me you have done your cause no harm at any rate now listen andrews and the servants know but i forgot to tell you i am leaving for london by the seven forty train in the morning going to london she exclaimed his face now that the fit of mirth had passed seemed unnaturally stern and strained there is still one visit which i must pay to the british museum he confided one sentence alone which troubles me i know where to look for the key however i shall return by the five o'clock train as i have promised you i will then so soon as i am sure of the treasure make up my mind as to its disposition you had better go to bed now let me repeat that you have done your cause no harm by our conversation this evening on the contrary you have probably done good but i wish now to be alone good night she came over and kissed him thankful for that episode of humour somehow or other aware of a vein of more complete humanity in him during the last hour he accepted her salute perfunctorily patted her hand and waved her towards the door as soon as she had departed he turned the key in the coffer 
for at least a couple of hours endicott worked in peculiar fashion stretched out before him was the sheet of paper upon which he was writing above it the manuscript yellowed with age which he was continually studying on his left were the chinese dictionary a vellum-bound manuscript dictionary of phrases having the appearance of great age and a collection of notes mostly compiled at the british museum and secured with a paper fastener on the sheet in front of him were set out the letters of the chinese alphabet at times he slowly transposed these one whole sentence had already taken to itself concrete shape. Then, in the midst of his labours, he suddenly paused. His pen remained stiff, his head was upraised. He listened. Outside it seemed to him that the breathless calm of a hot summer night had formed the background for a slight noise, the faint rattle of a pebble displaced, a footstep it almost seemed. He listened again. The night, though light enough, was moonless, and he could only see a few yards through the window. He opened the left-hand drawer of his bureau, thrust his hand into its furthermost recesses, and drew out a small revolver. Then he rose stealthily to his feet and hesitated. He had not passed the greater part of his life in an undisciplined country without learning certain precautions. To stand in front of that window was to expose himself, a clearly defined mark for assault, if indeed there should be marauders about. He leaned over and turned out the electric light, crossed the room swiftly with the revolver in his hand, and passed through the window into the garden. He stood still listening with his back to the wall. There was an owl calling plaintively in the little grove of trees between the miniature park and the kitchen garden. Then silence the faint barking of a dog a long way off, silence again, and at no time anything unusual to be seen. Nevertheless, he lingered. Pebbles can scarcely become detached without human agency. His eyes tried to pierce the shadows. There was a dark shrub near the wire fence, or was it a shrub? He was suddenly convinced that it was the stooping figure of a man, he started forward, crossing the lawn with swift footsteps which gradually slackened. As he grew nearer, he was disillusioned. The shrub took to itself shape. Its similitude to a man disappeared. He stood and looked around him. Behind was the gloomy outline of the house, with one light burning in a top window from the servants' quarters. Of the village one or two rooftops alone were visible, but the lights had long since been extinguished. Around him was a dimly seen vista of trees and shrubs and flower-beds, a perfume in the air, but silence. He walked slowly towards the house, the butt of his revolver still gripped firmly in his hand. There was nothing to be seen, nor any sound to kindle anxiety, yet he was never devoid of that uncatalogued sense which bespeaks the close presence of something concealed, something inimical. He took to walking in circles. He was imagining always someone stalking him from the rear. He reached the study windows, however, without tangible sign of any intruder. He pushed them open and entered. The room was in darkness. He found his way to the switch and turned on the light. Instantly all his vague premonitions materialized. 
the papers upon his desk were in disorder the curtain in front of the soul had been dragged aside although the image still remained there smiling down upon him he switched on another light and looked around the room searchingly his firmly held revolver following his eyes the room was empty he looked towards the window almost at that moment he heard the soft swinging to and closing of the gate leading from the back avenue the intruder had apparently taken alarm and departed end of book two chapter seven book two chapter eight of stolen idols gregory on presenting himself at the great house on the following morning received the news of mr endicott's absence with marked interest gone to london has he he observed that means you're left alone for the day scarcely a tragedy she smiled there's my aunt across the way whom i must go in and see some time a perfectly delightful new piano that only arrived this morning dozens of books to read and if i feel energetic enough i'm going to practice mashie shots with the club you gave me a thoroughly selfish program he pronounced why selfish because it is a solitary one improve upon it then she suggested easily he assented i brought my two-seater round anyhow hoping for the best but with your uncle away the thing is preordained i have given you six lessons at golf in the park you're doing thundering well but not well enough let's go to some real golf links she considered the matter where she inquired cromer he answered promptly it may be rather crowded there but we shall arrive late we can choose two or three vacant holes have some lunch at the clubhouse and motor home another way i should love it she acquiesced enthusiastically i'll go and tune up the old bus while you get ready he suggested it was a day which she never forgot a day when all the little things went right into which no jarring note of incident or conversation was ever introduced when the sun shone when everything which happened seemed to become an aid to further content they motored lazily along the country lanes to the links where gregory was obliged to go and fetch the professional to see his amazing pupil afterwards they selected clubs lunched sat on the terrace for a time and motored by a devious way homewards a mile or so from ballaston just inside the park crossing which had afforded them a short cut he stopped the car in the shadow of a great beech tree she looked at him inquiringly puncture sheer fatigue he rejoined mendaciously great strain driving a car like this do you mind just for a moment why surely not she answered leaning back and taking out her cigarette case it's perfectly delightful here won't you smoke he shook his head not just for a moment he answered looking straight at the mascot upon the bonnet of his car i want to talk and i'm a jolly bad hand at it anyway you're not so hopeless she assured him encouragingly you can go straight on i'll help you out when it's necessary she spoke lightly enough but already a queer little sense of excitement warned her to keep her face turned away from his the things which he might say seemed incredible she was passionately anxious and yet afraid to hear them you see miss clare he began i made a jolly bad start with you and that makes me extra careful 
I never thought I was going to turn superstitious, but I can assure you of one thing. I haven't trusted myself alone in Uncle Henry's room with that image since I got back. I hope your Uncle Henry's behavior, she began, with a faint smile. Oh, don't chaff, he interrupted. I think it would take the devil himself to persuade Uncle Henry to step out of the narrow paths. This is what I wanted to say. Claire, he paused again, unrebuked. His eyes looked up the avenue towards the house. His slim fingers played nervously with the steering wheel. "'We're in for a big family smash, we Ballastons,' he confided. "'What little there is left when it comes will have to go, of course, to the Governor and to Uncle Henry. For me there won't be anything. I'm not complaining. I'm young enough still. I have wonderful health, and, although I'm an ass at all the things that money's made out of, I can ride.' I understand farming and horses and all that sort of thing. I've made up my mind what to do. I'm going out to Canada. Canada, she murmured under her breath. Yes, I know some fellows there who are doing quite decently. I shall be able to get just the sort of start I want. Now, of course, he went on, under the circumstances I ought not to say what I'm going to say to you, but I'm going to say it all the same. I asked you to marry me once, Claire. It wasn't any good, of course. You had only seen the rotten side of me then, but you understood. Today I can't ask you to marry me, but I want to tell you that I have all that feeling which a man should have when he asks such a thing, and ten thousand times more than most men have. He paused again. She said nothing. Her face was turned even a little farther away. He went on. Of course I've done no particular good in the world, have been all sorts of a rotter from one point of view, but I've kept moderately straight about girls, and here's the truth, anyhow, I never came near caring for one before, and I love you. Gregory, she whispered. At the sight of her eyes, the sound of her voice, he was suddenly swept almost off his feet. It was amazing. "'Sweetheart, you mustn't,' he begged, holding her hand firmly. "'I know I'm doing wrong to tell you. "'On the other hand, it seems to me that I would be doing wrong "'if I went away and you didn't know. "'So there you are. "'I can't ask you to marry me, "'but I'm going to work like a horse as soon as I get away, "'and if I have any of the luck of the Ballastons they used to talk about, "'I shall only value it for one thing. "'I'm not asking you for anything, not for a thought even, much less a promise.' But if at the end of a few years I see my way, I wonder— You dear thing, Gregory, she interrupted. Kiss me at once. You know I didn't mean this, Claire, he said a little remorsefully as he stopped the car at the gates of the great house. I hoped you did, she answered demurely. Idiot, he smiled. Remember, we're not engaged. You haven't promised anything— You've been sweet and dear and given me just the stimulus for work I needed. Supposing, she whispered, that you found the treasure, you might not have to go to Canada. He shook his head gloomily. I daren't trust myself to think about that, he said. Your uncle seems to have made up his mind not to help us, and I'm beginning to lose faith in the whole story. Still, she persisted, if the story should turn out to be true— and uncle believes it, your home might be saved, and you should not have to go abroad at all. It would be wonderful, he admitted. Don't give up hope, then, she whispered. Uncle was quite sweet to me last night, absolutely different. He's gone to London. But there, perhaps I ought not to tell you. 
Just wait. Something pleasant may happen after all. The door was thrown open by Andrews, the butler. She gave Gregory her hand, which he held for a moment and raised to his lips. Her farewell glance lingered long in his memory. End of Book Two, Chapter Eight